Lord, we ask that you bless our Bible study tonight, Lord. Please speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Acts teaches us some divine mathematics. You probably didn't know that there was such a thing. But you know, God knows his math. In fact, there's a book of the Bible called Numbers. God adds, God subtracts, and God multiplies. In Acts chapter 2, verse 47, we're told, The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. When any church is a healthy church, God adds to that church. In Acts chapter 5, the Lord subtracts two hypocritical members from the church. You remember the story last week of Ananias and Sapphira. And in tonight's chapters, chapter 6, verse 7, we read that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There we have it. God adds, God subtracts, God multiplies. These are all functions of divine mathematics. But notice the one thing God never does. He adds to his church, subtracts from his church, multiplies his church, but God never divides his church. You see, it is man who causes division, not God. Which brings us to Acts chapter 6, the first church squabble. You see, the unity of the church in Jerusalem was being threatened over an issue of equity. There was a breach over the bread. The Greek or the Hellenistic Jews didn't think that their widows were getting a fair share of the benevolence. It was really just a minor matter, but as such things do, these kinds of disputes often escalate to major proportions. Verse 1 of chapter 6 mentions the term Hellenists. Understand that these were Jews who had embraced Greek language and Greek culture. The Hebrew purists resented these Hellenists. They considered them to be compromisers. And there was already a great animosity between these two groups. It only intensified when someone accused the apostles of prejudice. Acts chapter 6 illustrates the value of good leadership. For if it had not been a wise and quick decision being made, it could have resulted in permanent damage to the church. A division is averted. The ministry's expansion continues because of good leadership from the apostles. You see, accusations of prejudice and inequities were swirling. But the real problem we find in verse 1, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. You see, this church had experienced explosive growth. It was amazing. They had gone from 120 in the upper room to over 5,000 in a matter of weeks. And the leaders, the resources of the church were having a hard time keeping up with the swelling numbers. The church's infrastructure had been spread too thin. You see, to this point in the ministry of the church, it had all revolved around the apostles. Twelve men were being asked to do it all for a church of over 5,000 members. You see, the problem here was not the presence of favoritism at all. It was the absence of delegation. See, it was now impossible for just 12 men to oversee every ministry of such a large church without neglecting the most vital matters, their top priorities, which was the study of the Word of God and prayer. In verse 2, the apostles made a decision that to me, saved the church from schism, and solidified its growth for many years to come. They recognized their priorities, and then they gave other aspects of the ministry over to other capable people. The apostles say in verse 2, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Guys, this is the decision that every pastor needs to make at some point in his ministry. We reach a point where we have to recognize our priorities and then get other people involved in the work to help us. When the famous preacher Alexander McLaren was once interviewed for a pastorate, he was asked by the elders of the church, you know, what are your going to be your requirements, you know, if you take this job? And Alexander McLaren told them, he said, I have one question. 
Will you want my feet or my head? I cannot give you both. Church members can be unrealistic. No church members here, mind you, but in other places they can be. Church members want powerful, anointed, impactful sermons on Sunday, but then they want the pastor to run around and visit everybody and his cousin all through the week. If you want to be taught God's Word, you have to give your pastor time in his study to prepare. Now, don't misunderstand. The apostles, they would have been happy to wait on tables. They would have been happy to clean toilets or move chairs. They weren't too good to tackle these tasks. Rather, they understood that if the church was going to grow and if they were going to last, they would need to stick to their priorities and delegate ministry to others. It was a wise decision. And the solution for all concern was the appointment of deacons. The deacons were the designated doers of the church. It was given to them the daily administration, the physical duties of the church. The apostles tell the church in verse 3 to choose seven men, notice, of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And the church chose seven men, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. All seven men, notice, have Greek names which meant the apostles graciously allowed the Hellenists who had been complaining to choose men from their own ranks, men that they would be able to trust. It was a very gracious decision on their part. Notice, too, these men were chosen to wait on tables and to distribute meals, and yet notice the high qualifications that were established for what we might consider to be routine tasks of good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, to wait on tables. And yet it just goes to show that any act of service done in the name of Jesus Christ should be considered a big deal by those concerned. Note verse 6. This is vital. The apostles prayed, then they laid hands and appointed these deacons. You know, the last thing the church needs are leaders appointed by men who were never ordained by God. That is all too often the case. In the end, the apostles' willingness to delegate, their commitment to their priorities, and the deacons' willingness to serve all combined to solve the problem at hand, to save this church from schism, and to catapult it into the future. Verse 7 tells us that as a result of all this, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. It was a good decision indeed. Stephen, the first name to appear in this list of deacons, is a good example to all of us. Guys, be faithful in the menial tasks. And God might just broaden your ministry and use you in mightier ways, ways even beyond what you might have expected. According to verse 8, Stephen went from table waiter to miracle worker. It was quite a promotion. Hey, because Stephen was faithful in the so-called little things, God blessed him with more influential opportunities. Guys, if we will be faithful in the mundane, who knows the miracles that God might work through us. At the end of chapter 6, Stephen is persecuted. He's accused of blasphemy against the temple and the law of Moses, and he's hauled into court. Acts 6 closes with verse 15 with an interesting comment. We're told, And all who sat in the council, or that is the Jewish Sanhedrin, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Like Moses, Stephen radiated the glory of God. But unlike Moses, Stephen offered the people a better way to God, the way through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, God is not confined to a temple made with hands. God is not limited by the law. God is doing a new work on the earth. And that is the theme of Stephen's defense in chapter 7. The Jews who hauled Stephen into court, who accused him of blasphemy against the temple and the law, remind me of the burglars down in Fort Lauderdale. Did you read this story? Recently, some burglars broke into a house and they stole a box of white powder. 
Apparently, they thought it was cocaine. But it was actually the cremated remains of Aunt Gertrude. It's a funny picture indeed. If you stop and try to imagine those burglars all sitting around trying to get high on old Gertie's ashes. What a funny picture. And yet this was the problem with the Jews. Jesus had made the law. He had made the temple rituals obsolete. In essence, Judaism was a deceased religion. Stephen, on the other hand, was high on a real relationship with God that he had found through Jesus Christ. You see, the law and the temple were no longer needed. All that was needed now was faith in Jesus Christ. Stephen's sermon here is a masterpiece. He retraces Jewish history, demonstrating how God was always up to something new. This was, this was nothing new, that God was up to something new. And yet, at each turn along the way, at each new initiative, God's actions had been met with Jewish resistance. Call his sermon a panoramic view of people's stubbornness. God had picked out a man among the pagans, a man by the name of Abraham, And he made promises to Abraham and to his descendants. Those descendants went to Egypt to escape the famine. They became slaves to the Egyptians until God raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses. You know, D.L. Moody once said of Moses, he spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking that he was a somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was a nobody. And then 40 years as Israel's leader showing what God can do with a somebody who knows he's a nobody. The story is recounted in chapter 7, verse 23, of how Moses tried to deliver the people through his own efforts. It was a tragic mistake, and Moses had to flee to the desert. It wasn't until he was 80 years old that God appeared to him in the burning bush. Verse 30 tells us, And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Notice Stephen says, an angel of the Lord appeared in the bush. But notice in verse 32, the angel calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What's up with this? An angel who claims to be God himself. You see, the word translated angel is actually messenger. And I believe the messenger that appeared to Moses in the burning bush was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus, the messenger of God, who spoke from the burning bush claiming to be God, and it was this Jesus who was responsible for the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt. You'd think that the Israelites would have been happy over what God had done for them, But verses 39 through 50 describe their desire to worship idols. And for the next 900 years, they are lured away again and again by false gods until they are finally imprisoned in Babylon. Stephen sums up this course in Hebrew history in verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of course meaning Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. What a powerful conclusion to his message. And in verse 54, we're told how they reacted. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. These priests suddenly turned into pit bulls in clerical robes. They started gnashing and just erupted in violence. It was at that moment that Stephen saw a vision of heaven. The heavens were told open. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that's interesting because elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is always seated at the right hand of God. Reminds me of the little boy who came home and, and said, Mommy, I learned in Sunday school this morning that God uses his left hand. 
And she says, what do you mean God uses his left hand? I'm sure God uses both his hands. He said, oh, no, Mommy. My Sunday school teacher told me that Jesus is seated on his right hand. (laughs) But we're always told that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Suddenly, Stephen looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing. Why is he standing? Jesus is so excited. He is so eager to greet Stephen that Stephen's faith and devotion causes Jesus to rise to his feet to welcome his servant to glory. The Jews pick up stones to throw at Stephen. And in a bath of blood, he asks God to forgive his executioners. It reminds us of his Lord. He turns his spirit over to the one who saved it. Guys, it's been said the blood of the martyrs becomes the seeds of the church. It's true. And as we'll see here, Stephen's death causes many to receive new life in Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 opens in verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. The word consenting means voting. Apparently, this Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the Jewish Supreme Court. And he had played a prominent role, evidently, in the execution of Stephen. Understand what's happened now. Tens of thousands of believers are worshiping together in Jerusalem. The fellowship is warm and giving. The power of the Spirit is evident. Miracles are occurring. The church is exploding. There's high energy and great harmony. Hey, this is a church that you would want to be a member of. The church in Jerusalem, this is the place to be. There's only one problem. Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach and teach the gospel. Hey guys, you're having fun in Jerusalem, but what about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? Remember that part of the Great Commission? And these new believers, they need a little nudge to get out of the nest and to branch out and to begin to spread the gospel. And that's what God provides them in Acts chapter 8. Verse 1 tells us, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And the result of this is described in verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Isn't that interesting? God uses a wave of persecution to nudge the church out of the nest to get on with the task of evangelizing the world. Philip had been a deacon, along with Stephen, in the church at Jerusalem. But in verse 5 of chapter 8, he heads to Samaria to preach Jesus. The message is received. Miracles take place. Demons are cast out. People are healed. Great joy comes to the city of Samaria. One of the new converts, though, in Samaria was a sorcerer by the name of Simon. You see, for years, Simon had deceived the Samaritans with his magic, with his sleight of hand. Now he was amazed at Philip's bona fide miracles. He had, was so amazed that he had become a believer in Jesus, too. When the church in Jerusalem heard about this revival that was taking place in Samaria, they sent two of the apostles, Peter and John, to check it out and to give the people in Samaria their blessing. You remember back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had told Peter, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting, every time the gospel broke a new cultural barrier, It was Peter there to open the door to that new people group. It happened with the Jews in Acts chapter 2. It happens with the Samaritans here in Acts chapter 8. And it will happen again with the Gentiles at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. Understand, too, Philip was a deacon turned evangelist. He preached to see people saved. But there is more to the Christian life than just salvation. Salvation is really just the tip of the iceberg. The Spirit not only lives in us, but the Spirit also wants to come upon us with power. You know, it's really like sitting in one of those dunking booths. Have have any of you ever done that? Been the guinea pig? Actually sat up there on the bar and had the people throw the ball? And you know, you're sitting there, you're you're dry, your your feet are just sort of dangling in the water. You're you're in the water, but it's, you know, you're, you're, you're just your feet wet. 
until suddenly someone hits that bullseye and bingo, there you go, splashing into the water. You're suddenly immersed in the water. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. As Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but the Holy Spirit wants to do more. He wants to come upon us. And suddenly we can be immersed with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the baptism. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's available to us today. You remember the old hymn, Mercy drops round us are falling. You see, that's, that's our normal experience. But you remember the, the second part of that, But for the showers we plead. Oh, we like the mercy drops, but Lord, give us the showers. That's what we need. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. The Samaritans had the Holy Spirit within them. They had believed on Jesus through Philip's preaching. But according to verse 16, as yet the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them. Peter and John came to Samaria to lay hands on these new believers and to impart this special power. When the ex-sorcerer Simon saw how Peter and John laid hands on the believers and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, well, his eyes lit up. He thought the power of the Spirit, wow, what a sorcerer's trick. What a technique. If I could learn that, if I could have that in my arsenal. And Simon tries to purchase this power from Peter. This is where we get the sin of simony. It is the attempt to purchase spiritual power or spiritual clout with carnal cash. Always remember, guys, that spiritual gifts are just that. They are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They can't be purchased. You can't buy them with gold, nor can you buy them with good works. They are a gift from God to us. The word charismata literally means grace gifts. You can't earn the gifts of the Spirit. They're given to us freely by God. In verses 20 through 23, Peter delivers a stern rebuke and he calls Simon to repent. In chapter 8, verse 26, Philip obeys an impractical command. He's told to leave this great revival in Samaria and travel down to a lonely wilderness road that leads really to nowhere, the road to Gaza. It's kind of like that stretch of interstate from Macon to Savannah. You know, if you go down I-16, it's like, man, it's just nothing but tumbleweeds. That was the road to Gaza. It's not until Philip arrives that God's purpose becomes clear. And isn't that the case with most of God's commands? You know, you don't always see what God intends to do until you first take that step of faith, until you step out in the way that God requires, and then it's it's at that moment that God's purpose becomes clear. Philip sees an Ethiopian dignitary sitting in his chariot. This was a man of clout. This was a court officer in the, the court of Candace. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship God. He was a seeker. In fact, when Philip approaches the Ethiopian, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah had prophesied the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Philip climbs into the chariot and according to verse 35, and beginning at this scripture, preach Jesus to him. As they traveled down the road, apparently they passed a pool of water. That's when the Ethiopian asked Philip, Hey, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And I love Philip's response. He says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. Understand, Philip doesn't try to water down the qualifications of baptism. Salvation and the baptism that follows requires more than just an intellectual assent. It requires more than just an agreement with the facts. Salvation, true saving faith, is a heart issue. You've got to believe with your heart, with your will, with your desires, not just your mind and your mouth. We're told the Ethiopian's response, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And note verse 38, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, if Philip had simply sprinkled the man... Why did they go down into the water? And this is why we believe that the early church practiced full immersion baptisms. 
Or you just might want to say they dunked them. In verse 39, God does a little rapture practice. We're told the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. Wow. Philip ends up in Azotus, about 35 miles away. God has performed a miracle of transportation. After the stoning of Stephen, Rabbi Saul became the church's chief antagonist. Back in chapter 8, verse 3, we were told, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That word translated havoc was used to describe a wild animal mangling its prey. This was how God, how Saul was treating the church. Saul was like a pit bull with rabies. And in chapter 9, he takes his campaign of terror on the road. Rabbi Saul gets permission from the high priest to follow the Christians to Damascus and to bring them back to prison in Jerusalem. Notice in chapter 9, verse 2, the name given to the early Christians. We're told Saul wanted to arrest any who were of the way. I like that. What a wonderful description of the early believers. They were part of the way. You know, true Christianity is not a creed. It's not a doctrinal statement that we ascribe to. True Christianity is a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of treating other people. It's the way. All that Saul had done had been in the name of God. All this persecution, understand, he thought he was doing God a favor by stamping out these followers of Jesus. But on the road to Damascus, he meets God. And he discovers that God is on the other team. A blinding light opens Saul's eyes. He gets knocked off his high horse, literally, in more ways than one. And he hears a voice speak to him in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I like what Saul says. He asks, who are you, Lord? What a shocker it must have been when he heard the Lord say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Oh. But I like that. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He had been persecuting the Christians, but Jesus had taken it personally. And you know, Jesus takes our persecution personally. When we are reviled, when we are laughed at, when we're scoffed at, Jesus takes it personally. They're not just doing it to you. They're doing it to Jesus. Whenever the church is mistreated, it's as if you've mistreated Jesus. We are his body on the earth. In verse 5, the Lord says to Saul, It is hard for you to kick against the goads, or the equivalent of a cattle prodder. Saul's rage was evidently a reaction to the Holy Spirit's conviction inside He had seen the peace and the joy in Stephen's face. I believe he was haunted by Stephen. I mean, he would wake up at night in a cold sweat. The Holy Spirit just wouldn't let him forget Stephen's testimony. He wasn't haunted by Stephen. He was haunted by Stephen's memory, the memory of the experience. He he just wouldn't let Saul forget what he had done to Stephen. And, and, And he probably woke up just remembering Stephen's face like an angel. The the rocks coming down upon him. And and yet, all Saul could do is to fight harder against the prodder. Which brings up an interesting point. You know, often we think of Christianity's chief antagonists. We, We think of them as being the most vocal. We think of the the most outspoken critics as being the hardest to reach. But you know, it may be just the opposite. It may be that those who are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they're the ones that shout the loudest. You know the old saying, when you throw a a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that shouts the loudest is the one that got hit. You know, it's the person who doesn't care. It's the person who's apathetic. It's the person who says, oh, you believe the way you want to believe and I'll believe the way I want to believe. That's the person who may be furthest from the truth. But the person who's angry at the gospel, they're the person that's being prodded. They're the person that the Holy Spirit is is working on and is convicting. 
You know, they're the person who's really closest to the truth. Saul surrenders to Jesus in verse 6. He asks, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus tells him to enter Damascus and wait for further instructions. Now, imagine being Ananias. You're a simple disciple, minding his own business, just living the walk, walking the walk, living for the Lord there in Damascus. When one day God speaks to you in a vision and tells you to go to the house on the street called Straight. And there you will find Rabbi Saul. I want you to go welcome him to the family of God and pray for him that he would receive his sight. Wait a minute, Lord. Hey, this would be like God telling you to journey to a secluded hideaway where there you will find Osama bin Laden. You're to pray for him that God will open his eyes. Which reminds me of the bumper sticker that was recently seen on one of the army bases. It said, God will judge Osama bin Laden. My job is to arrange their meeting. (laughs) This is how you might have felt about being asked to go and visit the the Apostle Paul, but at the time, was Rabbi Saul. I mean, this man was a terrorist. This man had been killing Christians. And yet God was asking Ananias to go to him and to extend grace. In verse 13, Ananias voices his reservations. And God says to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And I love how Ananias addresses Saul when he enters the house Verse 17, catch this, Brother Saul, did you see that? Brother Saul, what an affirmation of God's grace. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're told in verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. The church's most antagonistic persecutor will soon become its most aggressive preacher. Guys, never underestimate the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 20, we're told that immediately Saul went out and began to teach in the Jewish synagogue there in Damascus. Apparently, the lights just came on suddenly for him. Things began to fall into place. You know, the whole Old Testament came alive. He, he began to see it in light of the cross and how it had foreshadowed the events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Saul opened his heart to Jesus, his understanding was also enlightened. And in verse 22, we're told that he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ, or literally the Messiah. This is why the Jews quickly plotted to kill Saul. The persecutor now becomes persecuted. It's interesting, Saul came to Damascus riding on a high horse. He leaves being let down in a basket. The Jews had the gates staked out, and so Saul is let down over the wall, under the cover of darkness. Verse 26 describes Saul's first visit to Jerusalem as a believer in Jesus. It's several years later, apparently, but the reception is still frosty. You remember Saul had murdered a deacon in this church. He'd probably murdered other of the apostles' friends. I'd be a little standoffish myself under those kinds of circumstances. They all doubted the genuineness of Saul's conversion. And it was Barnabas who stood up and went to bat for Saul. He arranged an opportunity for the apostles to hear Saul's testimony, and it was afterwards that they received him into fellowship. Eventually, Saul made the Jews in Jerusalem angry, and he was forced to return home to Tarsus for the next seven years. You see, Saul had the right message, but he had the wrong audience. He was preaching to the Jews. God would call him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter also plays a part here in Acts chapter 9. In verses 32 through 35, he heals a lame man 
named Aeneas. He says to him, arise and make your bed. If you're a teenager, that's probably what your mother tells you every morning. (laughs) You know, you've heard that before. That's what Jesus said to the lame man. Take up your bed and walk. Peter also raises a woman from the dead. He puts the mourners out of the room. And then he says to the corpse, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes and sits up. Notice, though, both miracles. Peter not only mimics what Jesus had done, but he goes as far as to copy the way he did it, even down to the words. And I think this is good policy for all the Lord's disciples. Let's follow the Master, not just in word and deed, but in method and motive as well. Acts chapter 10 proves that God hears the man who fears God. Verse 1 says, There was a Gentile centurion in the coastal town of Caesarea. An angel appeared to Cornelius in a dream and told him to fetch Peter from Joppa. In the meantime, Peter was on the rooftop there in Joppa, wrestling with his conscience. It was noon. It was time for lunch. But Peter didn't like what God had placed on the menu. God gave Peter a vision, a giant picnic blanket descending from the sky. It was full of incredible edibles. But not for a pious Jew. This was not a kosher picnic. Everything on the menu was off-limits to Peter's culture and religion and upbringing. And yet God commands him in verse 13 to rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response, of course, is the ultimate contradiction. He says, not so, Lord. (laughs) The word Lord, remember, means boss. How can he be Lord if you refuse to follow his instructions? Understand, though, this is no small matter for Peter. Diet was a big deal to the Jews. He had been trained and conditioned from childhood to consider certain foods clean, others unclean. To change at this point in his life would force him to ditch long-held beliefs, throw tradition to the wind, uproot conviction. He would have to violate his conscience. This would be like asking a diehard vegan to pig out on a chili cheeseburger. I mean, this was a tall order. Peter is on the rooftop here wrestling with his conscience. As I said this morning, we need to understand that our conscience is an interesting organ. It can be trained by truth or it can be trained by tradition. The conscience can fight against the Holy Spirit or it can be his ally. In this case, Peter's conscience is supporting a prejudice that needs to be dispelled. God is teaching Peter that he's doing a new work on the earth. What was once called unclean is now okay. And that not only included pork chops, it included Gentiles. Peter gets immediate confirmation of this vision. Guess who shows up at the door? He opens the door and there stand three Gentiles who want him to go to Caesarea and preach to Cornelius and those who are at his house. It's interesting, the next day, Peter arrives at Cornelius' house. And when he does, the host falls at his feet to worship him. You know, it's interesting, people still do this to Peter. At St. Peter's Basilica, in the city of Rome, long lines of people wait to come up and kiss the foot of Michelangelo's statue of Peter. In fact, it's been kissed so often, the big toe on Peter's right foot is now missing. It's been worn off. People still want to worship Peter. You know, Peter would say to them today, what he said to Cornelius in verse 26, Stand up. I myself am also a man. Peter goes on to tell Cornelius and his Gentile friends about the change that God has worked in his heart, about the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter begins his sermon in verse 34. In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Oh, prejudiced Peter, he's come a long way. God shows no partiality. 
He accepts Jews and Gentiles alike through Jesus Christ. He goes on to preach the gospel, and we're told in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Before he had finished his sermon, faith was born in the hearts of these Gentiles, and the Spirit of God was poured out upon them. Verse 46 points out that the Gentiles also spoke with tongues, just as the Jews had on the day of Pentecost. It was another way of God proving that his confirmation that salvation had come to the Gentiles just as it had the Jews. You see, without being circumcised, without having ever offered an animal sacrifice, without ever celebrating Passover or visiting the temple or going through a Jewish ceremonial ritual, God blesses these Gentiles in the same way that he had blessed the Jews by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Certainly, a new day had dawned. You know, guys, in a very real sense, you and I owe our inclusion in God's kingdom to what happened that day in Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10 is such an important event that it's repeated twice. In Acts chapter 10... And then when Peter tells the church in Jerusalem what had happened in Acts chapter 11, it's a very important event. In chapter 11, Peter returns to Jerusalem and he's forced to defend his actions before his fellow Jews. You can bet they raised their voices when they said in verse 3, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? How dare you, Peter? Remember that old schoolyard game we used to play? Red Rover, Red Rover, send David right over. Everybody would grit their teeth. They would lock their hands. They would hold on as tightly as possible. And then David would come running across trying to break through the line. You remember that game? Well, this is how I envision Acts chapter 11. Jesus is calling. Red Rover, Red Rover, send the Gentiles on over. And yet you've got this line of tightly clenched Jews, all locking arms, determined to keep out the Gentiles. Peter recounts the vision and the experience at Cornelius' house. He concludes in verse 17, If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could withstand God? (laughs) That's a good question. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Well, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Guys, never forget the Holy Spirit is never unbiblical, but he is often non-traditional. God's message never alters, but his methods and means are subject to change. And here we find that grace wins round one. (laughs) But there will be some more battles to come. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, we find the history of the church in Antioch at Syria. Antioch was the third largest city in the empire. From Antioch, the church reached out to the Gentile world. This was sort of the beachhead of Christianity to the Roman world. Perhaps the church in Jerusalem sensed the importance of what was going on in Antioch, and that's the reason they sent Barnabas to encourage the believers there. Verse 25 tells us that Barnabas also sailed to Tarsus, where he retrieved his old buddy Saul. And the two men ministered in Antioch for an entire year. An interesting side note appears at the end of verse 26 of chapter 11. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The suffix I-A-N meant the party of, and thus the word Christian meant the party of Christ. In fact, this is how the Romans referred to slaves, that they would call Claudius's slaves the Claudians, or Anthony's slaves the Antonians. The Romans meant this name Christian as a derogatory term. Oh, you're just the slaves of Christ, but the Christians... (laughs) They accepted it as an honor. 
we should too. At the end of chapter 11, we find the Gentile believers in Antioch collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. It's always a wonderful act of charity and love and unity whenever one church seeks to help another in a time of need. Chapter 12 opens. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, the one who had slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem at the time of the birth of Jesus. Tradition says that Herod Agrippa here had James beheaded. He did this despicable deed to win favor with the Jews. And when it worked, he arrested Peter too. Hey, he thought with Peter dead also, his approval ratings would just soar. They would go right through the roof. Herod puts four squads of four soldiers each in charge of Peter. This is maximum security, understand. But in verse 5, the church orchestrates a jailbreak. How do they do it? Well, let's read it. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. They orchestrated a jailbreak, and how? By offering up constant prayer for Peter. Puritan preacher Thomas Watson wrote of this passage, The angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Hey, this church was a praying church. And guys, there is nothing more powerful in the world than a praying church. Understand Peter's situation. He's handcuffed here to two soldiers. He's on the verge of execution. He should be scared to death. Instead, he's sound asleep. Old Peter's out like a log. In fact, when the angel appears, notice, he has to slap Peter to wake him up. He has to hit him to wake him up. I love Peter's faith here. He's sound asleep on the brink of disaster, in the midst of trouble, what would you be doing in similar circumstances? Oh, you'd be praying and pleading and crying and, oh, wise me, wise me. You know, Peter was cutting Z's rather than asking wise. (laughs) Perfect faith, wonderful, beautiful faith. Suddenly, his chains fall off. The gates swing open. The angel escorts him outside the jail. We're told it, it was even outside the jail that he finally just kind of got his senses. Up until then, he wasn't sure whether this was a dream or whether it was the real thing. It reminds me of the guy who made the confession, you know, I dreamed last night that I was eating a plate of spaghetti. And when I woke up, my pajama string was gone. Peter didn't know it was was a dream or whether it was a real thing. You know, it's funny. The church had called an all-night prayer meeting to intercede for Peter. But when the answer to their prayer knocks on the door, they don't believe it's really him. In verse 15, they say to the young girl, Rhoda, who answers the door, You are beside yourself. In other words, sister, you're crazy. What do you mean that's Peter? Hey, Don't attribute Peter's release to the church's formidable faith. (laughs) They prayed a prayer. They weren't really expecting to be answered. But understand, at least they prayed. God, sometimes we find ourselves asking for the unbelievable, praying for the unimaginable. Our faith may fail in the light of the circumstances But if we use the little bit of faith that we've got, we give God an opportunity to answer the prayer and to work His miracles. I want you to understand one thing. If you don't learn anything else tonight, you need to learn this. The only prayer God can't answer is the prayer that never gets prayed. Herod instigated this persecution because he couldn't stomach the Christians. In the end, he can't stomach applesauce or saltines. Worms feast on his guts. History dates the year as 44 A.D. 
at the amphitheater there in Caesarea. Herod bathed in the public adulation of the crowd. He let the people admire him as he stood there in all his splendor. They even began to hail him as some god. Verse 23 tells us his plight. The Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. Guys, never try on glory that only God deserves to wear. At the beginning of the chapter, Herod was cutting down Christians. And the church was praying behind closed doors. At the end of the chapter, Herod is the one who's been cut down. And in verse 24, we're told, The word of God grew and multiplied. You can't stop it, baby. It's of God. It continues to grow. It continues to multiply. And we're sitting here tonight as evidence of it. Father, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit for the Word of God and for Your promises to do great things even today. Lord, we know and we realize that the book of Acts is just the beginning. That You want to carry on Your works in the world today. Lord, You want to use this church in mighty and powerful ways. Lord, help us to pray prayers so they can be answered. Help us to live by faith. Help us to be daring and bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. Lord, come and fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Just as we wait... Upon the Lord tonight. Let me just encourage you. If you desire. If you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Just go to him now in prayer. Just reach out in faith. And ask God. Lord, please fill me with your spirit. Just do it now. Lord, we don't want to be the same as we've been. We want to count for you, Lord. Fill us tonight, Lord, with your spirit. As we go this week to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks for coming.